like to invite you to turn to page 1024. Our reading this morning is Luke 8, 26 through 39. Luke 8, 26 through 39. I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this passage first and put it a little bit into context. This takes place right after Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a boat and they're beset by a storm, which Jesus is able to calm by speaking to it. So Jesus is able to display his mastery over the physical world. After this story is when Jesus, it says, resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. And even though he faces opposition along the way to Jerusalem, this is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke, where he starts heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the cross, heading towards that thing which God had called him to do so that he could save the world. And so we're in this tiny little interlude of space. Right before Jesus sets out to Jerusalem, there's evidently one last thing that he needs to do before he embarks on this journey, and that's to cross the Sea of Galilee, still a storm with his voice, and then what happens next is he has an encounter with a man who is beset by a legion of demons. So we're talking about the demonic this morning a little bit. And this is a little uncomfortable for people who have grown up in the Western world, in the first world. We, um, it's just not a normal part of our discourse to talk about demons. Uh, but it was very common back then. Demons were everywhere. Demons were infesting people. Demons were making people do crazy things. Demons were making people cut themselves. Demons were making people utter, utter things that were unutterable. And so uh, Jesus has several encounters with the demonic in the Gospels. And this is, I think, one of the most famous, actually. One thing that we see as Jesus is going about the Sea of Galilee and then as he ends his, his ministry around the Sea of Galilee and starts heading towards Jerusalem is that everywhere Jesus goes, he faces opposition. People are opposed to him. People are drawn to him because he's the Savior, because he heals, because he casts out demons, because he does the miraculous. But other people, or maybe even the same people, are opposing him at all costs because he's bringing change. He's bringing uh, change to the social order, and a lot of people have invested a lot of energy and social capital in keeping the social order the way it does. And Jesus is always talking and preaching about how to upset that social order and to turn it on its head. That's dangerous talk. He also spends time with really unsavory people, right? He spends time, he has table fellowship with people that you would never touch with a 10-foot pole if you were a self-respecting person back then. Maybe a 10-cubit pole, because they didn't have, they had cubits. So it would be 18 inches, it would be like 15 feet for us. So Jesus is always spending time in the company of dangerous, threatening, and immoral people, and so he's always the object of opposition no matter where he goes. And so there's opposition from the lake, the, the storm, and as we're about to see, there's going to be opposition from the demonic as well. Where is Jesus going? Jesus, as I mentioned before, is going to a region called the region of the Gerasenes. It's near the town of Gadara. The, the Gospels kind of have different sets of names for all these people. Suffice it to say that this was one of the cities or one of the regions in what is known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a set of ten Greek colonies that are in, in the region of the Galilee. And these are, generally speaking, more wealthy enclaves. They're Gentile enclaves, full of Greek-speaking people. And they have different habits, different traditions there. And so, basically, uh, it's like the people on the other side of the lake. 
where he was coming from was kind of a more densely populated with Jewish people. They had synagogues there. But on the other side of the lake was the Gerasenes, the, the, the part of the Decapolis. And so, you know, they didn't really want to go there. The, the disciples of Jesus went with him on this boat, but they didn't really want to go where the boat was going because they had nothing to do with those people. Uh, those, those colonies in the Decapolis were planted some 300 years before that when Alexander the Great came through and conquered most of the known world, and he left behind them all these places where Greek settlers and, and people followed him. Uh, and so Jewish people would generally just not visit those places places unless they had to for commerce or unless they had some other business there. And so right now, actually, if you go there, uh, Krista and I and George went there right to this place, we think, and there's a really good kebab stand right on this spot right now. Delicious, really good, like one of the best one in the Galilee, I think. And there's a community college, like a stone's throw away from the kebab stand. So the place has changed. But it's still there. You can go visit it. And not to make the sacred into something profane, but it just goes to show that life has kept on going in that place. It's been uh, continuously populated ever since that time. Different people have come and go, uh, come and gone, but yet you can still go there. And even there, you'll get a sense that, you know, even though it, the, there's mostly Jewish people living there now, you get a sense of when you're there, that this is a place that maybe the disciples wouldn't have wanted to go because it was sort of like the other side of the tracks. It was the other side of the lake. It was where the Gentiles lived. One of the signs of that this was where the Gentiles lived was the Gentiles had no problem having a giant herd of pigs. The Jews would never do this. And so even to step on the same ground as where all these pigs were running around, you wouldn't want to do that. And so just think of the huge gaps that the disciples kind of had to had to bridge when they walked with Jesus here. There was a religion gap. There was a wealth gap. Most likely there was a moral gap. The, the, the Gentiles had different rules about life together. There was a diet gap. They ate, they ate pork or they raised pork and they sold it to the Roman army. It's quite possibly they sold salted pork to the Roman army. And so there was this element of collaboration with an occupying army going on there. So there's all sorts of gaps that the disciples had to kind of jump over with Jesus but Jesus is always willing to go places where nobody else wants to go and spend time with people that, that his disciples didn't really want to spend time with. And you see that over and over again in the Gospels. So the disciples may have been relieved that they made it through this difficult storm with Jesus, but they have, might have been even more afraid to set foot on land on this side of the lake. That's an interesting thought. Going into this region of Gentiles and... Um, so interesting things happen when they set their foot on shore. We'll see. Just as Jesus demonstrated his mastery over the physical universe by calming a storm, he is about to demonstrate that he also has mastery over the spiritual world. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. It's on page 1024, if you'd like to follow along. Luke 8, 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torture me. 
For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to ask you to go right back into your text because we want to work through it just a little bit and then ask some questions about what does this mean for us and specifically, where would we put ourselves into this story. This is one of those stories that begs us, and beckons us, it invites us to put ourselves into the story and ask ourselves, if I were a character in this particular story, which character would I be? So be thinking about that. But let's go back, all the way back to verse 26. So again, part of the context of this passage is that Jesus is always facing conflict and opposition wherever he goes. And it's right on the cusp of the time when he decides to resolutely set out for Jerusalem and head up, head to the cross. And in that sense, but also in what happens in this story, this is a story that points forward towards the cross. It points forward to what God values and what God is willing to do to liberate people from evil. So it's a beautiful sort of foreshadowing even of the cross. And again, I wanted to point out that the power of the demonic is at work here. And the demonic is described here in terms that are very illuminating compared to other parts of, uh, of the Gospels. In, in other parts of the Gospels, we hear somebody being beset by a demon that makes them writhe around the floor, on the floor, sometimes throw themselves into a fire, all of which sounds really horrible if you're, if you're one of the family members of the person who's beset by a demon. In here, we find that the demonic is able to imbue this man with superhuman strength. Did you catch that? He was, can you imagine if he had some handcuffs on and he'd just go, twink? You know, the demonic gives him the power to sort of break these chains and run around. He, he's, like, he's like a greased-up pig. Nobody can catch him. Nobody can keep him. Nobody can keep, you know, keep him in one place. He's always running away and going off by himself. In fact, what it says is the man was always in the tombs, which is a place where nobody would sort of normally walk, or out in the solitary places. That's what our text says. The man was always seeking out the solitary places 
Another way to translate that word is the lonely places, the desolate places, the wilderness. This is, the idea here is that evil, the demonic, actually isolates this man from other people. It takes him away from human society, human culture, and it puts him in a place of loneliness and solitude, not the good kind of solitude, but the kind of solitude where the demons have their way with him. And so he's, he's completely outside of society. He, he, can't, he can't talk, he, he can't be contained, he wants to be alone all the time, he's always running away and um, tearing at himself and hurting himself. And um, so one of the questions that we can only sort of ask but no, have no answer to is, how did he get this way? What happened? What happened in his life? Where, where was that susceptibility to the demonic? How did this huge host of demons actually start entering into him and taking control of him, giving him the superhuman strength and forcing him out of his town and into uh, solitude and isolation? We don't have the answer to that, but I think it's a good question to sort of sit with. All that said, though, one thing you notice is that this person is the first person that Jesus meets when he gets out of the boat. So the, the image I have of this is that Jesus is in the boat, and he steps out, and he's on solid ground right here, and then here's this man. That's, the, that's how this text kind of reads, is when Jesus stepped out of the boat, here was the man standing in front of him. So despite the fact that the demonic had its rule over him and was forcing him to do all these crazy things and seek isolation and loneliness, yet, somehow, for a brief moment, the man didn't want loneliness or solitude. He wanted Jesus. He wanted to be there when Jesus landed. Maybe he saw the boat. You know, there's some cliffs around there. Maybe he saw the boat from a distance and he had some sense. This could be a sense of God reaching into somebody's life, even though they're in the control of the demonic, saying, get down there. Take that first step. Be waiting there for whoever gets off that boat because that's somebody important that you want to meet. Maybe the man, even if he was sort of insane, had heard about what Jesus had done. News spreads. Whatever the reality of it was this is the first thing that Jesus does when he steps on, on the shore is he has a confrontation with evil, a horrendous evil. So Jesus, if you look at, um, like I said in verse 27, it seems to be what's happening in, is that is Jesus gets out of the boat and there the man is. Now Jesus has the opportunity to demonstrate that he has power a lot of power, in the spiritual realm over the demonic. And here's something interesting that I want to draw your attention to. Um, here and in other places in the gospel, when Jesus confronts demons and asks them questions, they always have to answer. Have you noticed that? And they have to answer directly. They have to tell the truth. There's some authority that he has over them that forces them to speak. And this is different from how people ask Jesus questions. I want to draw this contrast because I think it's fascinating. When people ask Jesus difficult questions, what does Jesus do? He asks them questions sometimes. Or he tells them a parable. 
okay? It makes them think. It's very rare, although it does happen, it's very rare that when Jesus is asked a direct question, that Jesus gives a direct answer. He wants people to think, and he's not under the authority of the people who are asking the questions. But this is different. When he asks a demon a direct question, he always gets a direct answer. What's your name? My name is Legion. Wow, that didn't take long. You know, that was just, okay, you're answering me. And so he has the authority to ask questions, and his authority is so great that they answer the questions directly. That's important. And I wonder, again, another wondering question is, do they know each other? You know, this is a bit on, on the sort of the spiritual realm of things. Are these fallen angels that once knew Jesus in the heavenly court millennia ago, that fell out of grace and were roaming the earth, and they recognized Jesus, and they say, we know who you are, and we know you have spiritual authority of us, over us. Don't torture us, don't hurt us, don't torment us, because we know that's what's going to happen to us anyways. Do they know each other? They're kind of like, oh, hey, there's Jesus, but not, not in a good way. More like, oh, no, there's Jesus. After all these years, he's finally become incarnate, come into the world, and our days are numbered. Uh-oh. Our, our, our time of running this world is ebbing away. It's disappearing, and it's gone soon. And so they're, they're panicked. Uh, they weren't able to keep the man from running up to Jesus, and they're not able to stop what's going to happen next, which is their destruction. Yet they don't want to be tormented. They don't want to be um, tortured, as they say is in our text. And so Jesus also, even though he has authority over the demonic, is also able to compromise and have a conversation with the demonic. Don't torture us. Don't destroy us that way. They said, here's an alternative, Jesus. Can you allow us to enter this herd of pigs? And, you know, that'll be, we'll leave this man alone, and you can let us have the pigs. And Jesus says, all right, that's fine. You know, and he consents to this. Jesus actually, I don't know whether he cares about the demonic or he cares about that or he just, I don't know. I mean, we have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. But he permits this. He permits this sort of negotiation. Uh, we're going to let this man go because he's yours. We can't have him anymore. But let us have these pigs. And so they, they go out. Um, now, uh, what I don't want us to think is that, that God doesn't love pigs. Because he made pigs, right? He loves his creation. At, at creation, and when he created all the animals, he said it's good. And when I think of bacon, I just totally agree with God. I'm like, it is good. Yeah, some people love bacon, right? Um, so pigs are good. Uh, they just, God told his people not to eat them for dietary reasons, for holiness reasons, but pigs themselves are good. God made pigs delicious. It's really wonderful. But at this point, what these pigs represent really is wealth. These pigs represent a bank account for somebody who owns them. And they're shepherds or pig herders that take care of them. They're not shepherders, they're pig herders. And, and so this is wealth. And on another level, these pigs represent a collaboration with an occupying army, because most likely these pigs were being slaughtered and salted and sold to the Roman army for their rations. And by the way, did you know that pigs can swim? They're good swimmers. Pigs are great swimmers. And so when they, went into the, when they went into the Sea of Galilee and drowned, it wasn't because they couldn't swim. Something else was at work. The demonic was at work. All right? 
uh, or God's judgment was at work. But what we want to draw from this is that Jesus cares more for the spiritual liberation of a person beset by evil than he does about wealth, than he does about these other things that other people think are important. What matters to Jesus is liberating a man from evil. And here again we see this sort of sign pointing towards the cross as this is just a microcosm of what Jesus does on a much larger scale for the entire world. God cares about the world so much that he's willing to give up this thing, give up his son, and, and so that the world can be redeemed. God cares about redeeming people and liberating people from evil. So, what happens next? The people of the town get word, they come to investigate, they find this man whom they had known as uh, very difficult to contain. They find him in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, completely clothed, and even the man asks, kind of makes a really good request of Jesus. Can I please go with you? That's the kind of thing that a sane person says. And so um, the response to us might be a little bit confusing. Where's the rejoicing? Where's the happiness that this, part, this person who was in their community is now well? Okay, where is that? In fact, they're afraid. And they're afraid of something of what, you may ask. Are they afraid of Jesus? Is he going to do something to them? Are they afraid of the owners? Who are the owners of the pig? Are they going to seek compensation? Is this going to lead to um, a small recession in the area because some of the wealth of the area has just gone into the ocean and died, basically? You know, there's all sorts of questions that we could ask about this. Um, the livelihood of the town is probably hurt by this. There's a small recession on the way. And so Jesus is no longer welcome, and they urge Jesus to leave. Not, oh, here's some other people that have problems. Could you please come to our town and help them? Or here's some people with some illnesses, or here's some people who are hungry. Could you please come to our town? Because we've heard that you can help with all these things. But instead, their response is to push Jesus out of their town. And that's right when Jesus says, all right, I'm heading for Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. Uh, so no, no good deed goes unpunished, and this is certainly true for Jesus. So we've gone over the story again, and now I want to start ask, I want to ask you to start thinking about where would you put yourself in this story? I want to give us a few options, and there's probably more options than, not, than even we can give right now. But, um, and it's kind of odd because this story is distant from our experience, is it? We don't deal with the demonic that often in the Western world. Um, although it's definitely there, I would say. Um, we don't have a hang-up about eating pigs. Uh, generally speaking, we don't. And, and uh, you know, we don't, we haven't, I've been, actually I've been in a hurricane on a ship, but that was when I was eight years old or 10 years old. But we don't really have this experience of, of being in a near shipwreck either. So there's a lot of things that the, the disciples experience in this time that we don't experience, but yet the story is inviting us into itself and asking us, where would I put myself in the story? Who do I identify with the most? So let me start with the disciples and ask you to maybe, are you one of the disciples? Are you like the disciples? Uh, where Jesus is asking you to go to some really strange places and you're not really sure you want to go with him. You know what I'm saying? Jesus, somehow you get an urging to go someplace that doesn't feel 100% comfortable to you. Like when Jesus said, well, we're going over to the Gerasenes. Oh, 
why would we go there? That's the other side of the lake. Um, Brian sent me an article this week about a synagogue that decided to go to a gay bar this week and mourn with, with the patrons of that bar over what happened in Orlando. And it doesn't mean they have to agree with what's happening at the gay bar, but just to go there and show solidarity with them. Would Jesus do that? And you may have your opinion about whether Jesus would do that or not, but it certainly is in line with his habits of going places where other people don't go and hanging out with people that most people don't want to hang out with. Um, what would we say if Jesus asked us to do something like that, to go someplace where we don't really want to be seen, to be with people that we don't really want to be that near? So are we like the disciples in this story? Or are we like the man who was possessed? And if that's the case, I would really want to have a conversation with you. I mean, if you're identifying with this man who was possessed by demons, let's talk. And I mean that, I'm saying that in a light way, but I mean it in a serious way too, because there is a serious side to this, right? Um, even if the, the demonic actually takes many forms and many subtle forms, and even if you haven't been put in a straitjacket, you may have felt like you are not in control of yourself, that evil's at your doorstep that you're a captive to something that's taking control over you, and it could be something like a substance addiction or a process addiction. These are things that can infiltrate our lives and isolate us from other people and put us out into those lonely and solitary places where it feels like us against the world. And that isolation is where that demonic has its way with us and warps our reality. And so there's this beautiful image of God reaching into that man's life and saying, if the only thing you can do is walk down to the beach to be there when that man, whoever he is, gets out of the boat and puts his feet on the ground, just do that. Just take that one first step and then I'll take it from there. And that's what happens in this story. But that could be us. And I'll be honest with you. I, have, I haven't felt like I've ever been possessed by an actual demon, but I have certainly felt the oppression of evil. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't, praise God. But there's this oppression of evil that can hover around us and weigh down on us. And it does isolate us. We feel like we're alone in the world. And so we could maybe, we could identify with this man in the story. But the good news is that of all the people in the story, he became the one that was the closest to Jesus. He was the one that had the biggest turnaround in his life. And, and if so, if you're, like, if you're like this man, you may be standing at the shoreline waiting for his foot to touch the ground, ready for him to free you. And I urge you to just take that step. So come see me. Come see someone you trust. Come talk to one of the deacons here at the church. Ask for prayer to receive the liberation that only Jesus, and I mean only Jesus, can give when we're oppressed by evil. So finally, and this is not, this finally from my list, but not the list you could make, come up with more if you study the text, is we may be like the townspeople in this story. We may have a herd of pigs that we care more about than we care about somebody else's liberation from evil. As crass as that sounds, but that's the reality of how we operate. 
This thing, whatever it is, this herd of pigs, and it's just a symbol. It could be wealth. It could be something that we really want to see happen. It could be something that's just for us. And, and Jesus comes to our town and wants to destroy that thing so that this other good thing can happen. And we're not interested in that. We say, no, we really wanted that herd of pigs. Now you have to go, Jesus. And we, so we thus reject Jesus and kick him out of our town because we had a value that was different than he had for us. And part of the challenge in life is aligning our values to Jesus' values. When so often what we're trying to do is insist that Jesus' values should mirror our own, but it doesn't work that way. It never does. We align our values to Jesus' values. Jesus values freedom and liberation from evil for this man, for the world, for everybody. So I'd like to invite us to that place where actually watching our pigs run into a lake is not a trial for us, but actually a liberation for us. I think I told this story once before. The man who had so much stuff, and it was in his house, and it was to the rims of his house. I'm not sure if he was a hoarder or not, but you know, it was just everywhere in his house. And he came home from a trip, and from a distance he saw smoke. As he got closer to his house, it was completely on fire. All his stuff was going up in flames. And his first response was, oh, thank God. <laughs> Which is where I am, you know. There's a few things. There were some pictures, but we have those on the cloud now, so it's all good. But, like, what a liberation. This thing that I'm holding on to, but it's starting to have control over me. I'm valuing it more than what Jesus values. If I were to come home someday and see it all on fire or running into a lake and drowning itself... I hope I would say, praise God. This is a good thing. This man, when he was liberated, and us, when we are liberated, especially even if we're the people who have a herd of pigs that we're really counting on, what he did and what I hope we would do is then go and tell the news of what Jesus had done, and as the Bible says, all around town. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who liberates us from the demonic, from evil, from our own values that are in opposition to his. Lord, help us to engage with your word and find our place in it so that you may speak to us through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.